Thank you for listening to this forum podcast. Please check out our website for a rich archive of podcasts and writing from contemporary philosophers and other researchers on a wide variety of topics. The Forum is an educational charity dedicated to bringing academic philosophy to a broader audience. Please consider donating to us via our Just Giving page, which you can find on our website. Happy listening. Uh, so hi, I'm Claire Moriarty. Uh, I'm a fellow here at the Forum and I work at King's College London. Uh, welcome to this event on strong feelings, uh, in which, with the help of our eminent panel and hopefully you guys as well, we can explore some of the interactions between philosophy and the emotions. Okay, so to introduce our speakers, uh, this is M.M. McCabe, who is a fellow of the British Academy and Professor of Ancient Philosophy Emerita at King's College London. Uh, she has recently been Sather Professor at UC Berkeley, and her most recent book is Platonic Conversations, and she's currently working on one on the Euthydemus. This is Luke Brunning. Uh, Luke Brunning is a British research fellow at Oxford University, working on topics in ethics and the philosophy of emotions. And finally, Luna Dolezal is a lecturer in medieval, or medical humanities and philosophy at the University of Exeter. Uh, she has an ongoing research project on shame and medicine that is funded by the Wellcome Trust. Okay, so I thought we might start with Luke, who might give us an introduction to some of the emotional notions we'll be thinking about this evening. Okay. Yes, so thank you for having us and for having me uh, in particular. Um, so this is a, a kind of ludicrous task to try and summarise and anchor ourselves in this discussion because there's so much has been written about the emotions and we're going to hopefully have a good discussion that draws on both their history and contemporary research. Um, so my task at the beginning is just to try and sort of set the scene, try and uh, say a bit about some of the core themes, some of the main ideas some of the controversies and how they relate to contemporary thinking about emotions, both the philosophy of emotion and other ways in which philosophers appeal to the emotions in other areas of philosophy. And there's huge amounts of um, interdisciplinary work in this field. So philosophy of emotion um, sort of as a separate area of thought is relatively new, but as anyone will say, including MM, the kind of interest in the emotions has a very long history and it goes right back. Now, the, the thing that I always find fascinating about the emotions to begin with is just how diverse our kind of uh, terminology, our vocabulary is for describing them. So in, in natural languages, including English, there's a huge array of terms that we use to pick out various kinds of affective phenomena construed very broadly. Okay? Some of these are kind of well-known terms, you know, anger, jealousy, envy, all of that. Um, others are perhaps a bit more nuanced, a bit more sort of uh, subtly graduated. Um, we have to borrow terms from other languages occasionally. So schadenfreude is, a, is an emotion I like quite a lot. I'm quite interested in it, right? And that's a, a good example of emotion where we had to kind of borrow a term. Now, if you look at other languages, there's, again, a huge array of um, terms that people use. In fact, a recent article suggested there were sort of around 214 supposedly untranslatable terms in other languages to kind of capture things that we lack in English, right? Um, and the kind of whole array of examples... Now, this presents us with a problem because on the one hand we have this kind of huge array of diverse terms, but on the other hand we think of these terms as picking out a unified phenomena, the emotions. And so one thing that people try and think about is what unifies all of these things together, what kind of constitutes this domain of the emotions as opposed to other states of mind like beliefs, desires, uh, judgments, values, things like that. And this is a hugely problematic task. Okay? So one of the things we may discuss is various approaches that people have to try and unify this uh, vast array of material. Now, in sort of thinking about the emotions, people often focus or, or sort of hone in on 
various strands of uh, emotional experiences. And there are perhaps sort of two main strands. Uh, the first is what emotions feel like. Okay, so their phenomenology, the changes in your body, kind of the sweaty palms, the racing heart, the constricted sense of breathing that you get when you see your beloved kind of walk into a room or you see that terrifying spider on the wall, whatever it may be, right? There's a kind of change going on in your body. And these changes are often very visceral, okay? They needn't be visceral, but they often are. Um, and so some people focus very strongly on the phenomenology, what it feels like, okay? Uh, some people take it to the extreme that they say, well, emotions just are these kind of bodily sensations in one way or another, um, and that we distinguish between them in terms of the different kinds of feels that they have. So being afraid of a snake feels a certain way, being nervous about an exam feels a certain way, being in love with someone feels a certain way, and so on, right? Um, and that there's a kind of body phenomenology. Now, some people take a completely different track. They say, well, okay, this is kind of interesting. Obviously, there's something going on in your body when you have different emotions, um, but maybe that's not really enough to kind of help us describe and pinpoint the diverse things that we think of as emotions. So take, for example, uh, a kind of um, excitement. Excitement's a very interesting feeling, right? Um, you have a certain kind of almost shortness of breath, a kind of tightening in your, in your stomach, sweaty palms, a kind of agitatedness, right? You're really excited about something that's going to happen, um, and you're kind of in a state of unrest. Well, that's one kind of emotional state. But take anxiety or trepidation. Again, you might say, well, it feels very similar, right? You have a kind of anxious, kind of constricted, sort of uh, unrest, unrestful state, and you're not sure what's going to go on and what's going to happen, right? So other people appeal to uh, what they call the emotions intentionality, which is the way in which our emotions seem directed at the world, seem to be about things in the world in a certain way. So when you're anxious and... Uh, in the face of an exam or giving a talk to a large group of people, um, you might say, well, wh wh what am I feeling right now? Well, I'm feeling anxious. Well, what's that? Well, it's a feeling about this event, this exam that I've got to face tomorrow. Whereas when I feel excited, I'm excited that someone who I love is coming or that the team I support won the game, whatever, right? And so that those kinds of contents, this directedness to the world, is what other people think is really important when we're distinguishing emotions from each other. Okay, so that's the kind of intentional aspect, this aboutness, the way that your fear of a tiger is about the tiger in some sense, whereas your jealousy is about that kind of shady rival who's trying to steal your lover's affections. Okay, so other people focus really strongly on the intentionality. Okay, and in the history of the emotions, broadly speaking, there's a kind of big divide between people that really emphasise the body, feelings, phenomenology, uh, and people that really emphasise this kind of intentional aspect, which is often spelt out in terms of some kind of mental propositional content, right? Something you can write down in a sentence. I'm afraid that X, you know, there's an exam tomorrow, my team's going to lose, whatever it may be. And so that's a kind of big divide between what you might call the kind of cognitivists and the feelings theory people. Um, and this raises a whole host of interesting questions that we might get to later, things like unconscious emotions. Can emotions be unconscious? Is that a contradiction in terms or not? And, and so on. Uh, a huge array of interesting things. Now... One thing to note is that people think that, in many cases, perhaps all cases, um, emotions can be subject to rational appraisal. Um, at least intuitively speaking, this is one thing that people believe. So, you know, you, you have some terrible, terrible, uh, almost sort of breakdown in the, in the face of this tiny little spider at the, the back of this lecture hall. Right, you're shaking, you want to leave the room as quickly as you can, you can barely breathe, it's terrifying. You're absolutely gripped by fear. 
But your friend might say, look, your fear is kind of unwarranted, right? This spider's harmless. There are no poisonous spiders in this country, outside of the zoos and so on. You don't have to worry. Um, your, your emotional reaction is kind of irrational. It's, it's not warranted. Um, and this is an experience we've all had all the time, okay? Um, so we, we try to appraise our emotions and look at how they fit together with other things in our broader mental economy and in our kind of engagement with the world more generally. And recalcitrant emotions are a really great example, right? So when you're terrified of something you know to be harmless, you can often be really annoyed with yourself. Like, why am I so afraid of flying? It's completely safe. I know it's safer than driving in a car, but I'm absolutely terrified. But yet I know I have no reason to be, right? There's a disconnect between my beliefs. As someone who is scared of snakes, even on television, I can attest to yeah. it. So, so there we go. So I, I struggle with I struggle with squid. So you know, squid. squid. <laughs> but you know, I so don't on the plate. On the plate. Well, the idea or... of them in the sea, and you know, I've, I've, I'm learning to deal with that by by seeing how beautiful they are and mysterious and so on. Okay, but we can we can evaluate David Attenborough uh, therapy. Yeah, it's therapy. <laughs> That's brilliant. Um, so th- there's a lot going on there, right? Um, now, this is just talking about emotions, but, you know, some people say, look, let's not just get bogged down with the emotions. We want to look at the domain of the affective more generally. Like, why think about emotions as being particularly privileged? How about moods, right? Moods are, in some sense, the kind of broad background colours of our life, the kind of base undercoat on the canvas before any kind of picture is painted on it. And they're really important in their own way. Now, this generates a huge dispute amongst philosophers squabbling amongst themselves about what really distinguishes emotions from moods, okay? And that's a huge question, one that I'm not going to definitively answer here but a line of answering something like this look moods seem more general than emotions okay when you're jealous you're jealous at or about specific individuals at a specific time right but when you're anxious or when you're sort of jovial or kind of bored um your mood stretches over a much longer duration and it also doesn't really seem to be about things in the same way so uh boredom for example isn't really about anything in particular doesn't have a kind of object towards which is directed and similarly your diffuse anxiety may just linger there may not be a sort of clear obvious object right so people often distinguish between emotions and moods in terms of this intentional difference there's nothing that moods seem to be about um, and that can be really irritating right because when you're in a bad mood and someone says why are you in a bad mood and you say well i don't know i just feel really terrible today um the lack of an object can be frustrating. It can make it difficult for you to kind of change your affective state. And so we might talk a bit about the kind of differences between moods and emotions later on. Um, and in particular, there's some interesting stuff being done about the role of changes in moods and changes in these kind of more diffuse affective states um, and things in psychiatry. So some people think that a lot of psychiatric disorders are actually to be understood as changes, very subtle changes in the background moods that you have in, in, in your life. And they can really destabilise your relationship to the world in a general term. Now, emotions are kind of, as I'm trying to emphasise and repeatedly will become clear, very complicated, and people link them up to other aspects of the mind in different ways. So some people are particularly interested in the ways that beliefs seem to connect and play a role in emotional experiences other people think that emotions are very intimately connected to desires, the desires that we have. Um, and this can be seen often in their motivational aspect, right? So when you're afraid of something, you often have a desire to get, it, get the hell away from it. Uh, when you're uh, attracted to something, often you have a desire to sort of go near it, look at it. Okay, so there seems to be some kind of relationship between our motivation, um, our desires, and our emotions. Now, other people say, well, actually, emotions are also very intimately linked up with our perceptive capacities and also with our ability to recognise value. 
And there's a beautiful uh, kind of debate in the philosophy of emotion about the, this connection. And some people really think that, in a sense, emotions just are perceptions of value, right? That some kinds of feeling are just ways of seeing things as valuable or not valuable in the world in a very immediate and direct way. We just perceive um, things in this way. So an example that's often given is that you, you're sort of having a picnic and suddenly you just see that a child is walking on the edge of the wall, you know, just idly walking around a young child, and immediately you're kind of motivated you're, to stop this child from walking near the wall or near the well or whatever it is and try and get it to safety, right? And some people think that immediate emotionally rich response is just the perception of danger. You see the dangerousness, immediately you're motivated to act and you do so. And so there is a story to be told at some point about the relationship between values that people have and their emotions and how they connect. Mm-hmm. And again, this might be interesting when we're discussing uh, the relationships between sort of emotions and political life, civic life mm-hmm. and ethics mm-hmm. later on. Now, since the title is Strong Feelings, I should briefly talk about things like strengths of emotions. Okay? So um, again, here things get really complicated. So it's not immediately obvious what makes an emotion a strong emotion. Okay. And depending on your kind of uh, focal point, you might run with this in different ways. So you might say, well, okay, strong emotions are ones that feel sort of intense, right? That, that really sort of horrible fear when you see the snake on TV. Gripping. Just yeah. this gripping. It makes you feel really awful, right? Um, whereas other people say, no, strength is about other things. It's about the kind of um, the extent to which the emotion uh, is integrated in your overall mind, the extent to which it stays with you over time, the extent to which it motivates you to do stuff as opposed to just sort of idly sit there, right? And so cashing out what we really mean by a strong feeling is, is very difficult and will depend on really what we think emotions are. If we think that they're bodily, they're predominantly or constituted by sensations and feelings, then we'll have to say something about intensity. But if we think that they're also con- constituted by some kind of content, some aboutness, um, we'll have to say something about that and how that relates to what we believe and what we desire and so on. Similarly, when we're talking about good and bad emotions... There's a whole array of ways in which we might be doing that. Okay. Um, so, for example, is compassion a good emotion? Most people say yes. Well, what's involved in compassion in some sense is a kind of empathetic relationship to someone else's suffering, a perception of their suffering, right? A motivated orientation towards someone who is in a state that's worse than you. And that can feel bad in a certain way as well, right? Uh, famously, I think Aristotle, I have really dangerous territory with MM here, <laughs> thought of anger as a mixed emotion, right? On the one hand, it feels really bad to be angry, right? But on the other hand, there's a kind of sort of sweetness to anger. Um, and he attributed this to the kind of anticipation of revenge, that you somehow, yeah, I'm really, this person cut me up, you know, as I'm cycling down the road, I'm really angry, but, wait but I'm kind of enjoying it. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and so kind of descri- saying what a good emotion is and a bad emotion is is very difficult as well. And we can look at that at very different levels. Is it good in terms of how it feels for you or good in terms of its moral value. So I'm particularly interested in emotions like jealousy, for example. Very difficult to say in general terms, is it good or bad to be jealous? And hopefully we'll come on to this later because it's it's kind of interesting. Um, But briefly, you might think, well, jealousy feels awful, so that's bad. Uh, Whereas other people think, well, no, jealousy is a kind of constitutive element of being in love, so maybe it shows that you really love someone or something, and that might be morally good. I mean, maybe not. Um, Okay, so emotions are, uh, are messy, um, some people try and make sense of this mess by saying, look, there's a final um, relationship that we, we need to take in mind here, which is the relationship between our affective lives and our narrative capacities. So the late Peter Goldie, who's a philosopher who's brilliant on the emotions, thinks that a, a class of emotions are sort of narratively structured and that there's something about our storytelling ability, our ability to make sense, to tie together disparate aspects of mental experiences that gives emotions their distinct unity. 
Okay, so for him, grief was a really core example of this. To, to be grieving is to be in some sense undergoing a kind of affective change, loads of different feelings and sensations and thoughts, beliefs and desires, um, but they're all knitted together by this process of, of, of narrativity over time, and that's something we might come back with. Now, I'm briefly just going to sort of locate our discussion in, in philosophy more generally. So, why the emotions? Well, if you're interested in the emotions in and of themselves, then that's great because they're really interesting in and of themselves, and I think a lot of us are, kind of find them interesting. But if you're interested in other areas of philosophy, don't, don't worry that they're relevant there too. So, for example, sentimentalists and ethics think that a lot of our ethical reactions to phenomena are just basically emotional reactions, and that's all there is to, to being an ethical person, is to have your emotions in tune with the world in a certain way. Similarly, virtue ethicists think that it's very important to have the right kinds of feeling that you know, it's no good just doing the right action, as it were, if you feel completely out of sync with your benevolent giving or you're stepping in to save the child, whatever it may be. Similarly, there's a, a kind of um, recent trend in looking at the role of emotions in political life, civic life, um, which has long historical antecedents, but there have been a lot of discussions recently about anger, particularly in contemporary social movements in the US as well, where a lot of anger is being mobilised to sort of um, galvanise people forge movements and have political change and there's been a huge discussion about that kind of anger is it is it valuable is it in, only instrumentally valuable is it good in itself and so on so there's a, a huge area of discussion about the political efficacy and importance of emotions um, and this has a long history right so I mean those that are interested in the kind of Marxist critique of capitalism will notice that one strand of that critique focused on alienation this notion that in somehow being a kind of um, Remember, the working class is under capitalism, feels bad in a certain way, right? You're, you're disaffected, you're downtrodden, you're removed from the things that you produce. You don't have a direct affective access to value and so on. And so there's a whole debate to be had about politics and emotion, uh, which is really interesting. I've already mentioned the connections between psychiatry and mental health and emotions, and I think a lot of those connections are quite sort of self-evident on their face. But people suffer from a range of... Um, psychiatric disorders and other kinds of mood disorders, and these dra drastically affect their lives in different ways. So when we're talking about anxiety or depression or whatever it may be, we're basically naming sustained changes to one's emotional life. And so to understand these conditions, we need to, to understand what these changes consist in, which means we need to understand what anxiety is, uh, what it is to be in a certain kind of mood, what it is to be unable to get out of that mood, and so on. Um, it's also, I mean, an area of personal interest of mine is the relationship between emotions and relationships, the personal relationships we have with our friends and our family, our loved ones, partners, um, because these relationships are often sort of galvanised by strong emotions, like love. I mean, it's a good emotion to have. Uh, and the presence of other emotions as well, like envy, jealousy, sense of felt sense of insecurity and anxiety, fear. Okay, I mean, I wonder how many relationships stay together because people are afraid of various things. And so if you're interested in relationships, as I think you should be if you're interested in being a human being and kind of interacting with other human beings, um, the emotions are central to them. They're utterly central. Um, and in a large part, they really indicate to us our human vulnerability and frailty, which is pretty horrible sometimes. And we have to deal with it. Now, finally, before I hand over to, to everyone else, um, you might think that emotions animate philosophy itself and animate what we're doing right here. Okay, So... As you're sitting listening to us over this kind of hour and a half, you may be feeling certain bodily changes, right? You may be tense. You may think, oh, he's talking nonsense. Um, emotions aren't interesting at all. You may feel kind of anger, 
right? You may be taking umbrage with what uh, MM or, or Luna is saying, uh, not, not myself, uh, obviously. Or you may feel other things, right? You may feel a sense of uh, agreement, a sense of certainty, a sense that actually what's being said resonates with you in a certain way. And often those changes and feelings don't seem to be particularly cognitive in form. They don't seem to be belief-like things. They seem to be a certain kind of um, intellectual mood, you might say, right? So some people often say, look, a lot of what it is to do intellectual activity, whether it's philosophy or the sciences, is in some sense an emotional one, right? You're searching out for certain truths, you're looking for things that fit together, certain kinds of resonance, certain kinds of harmony and and kind of um, what philosophers might say, things that feel intuitively plausible, um, Mm -hmm. right? And maybe that's an emotional feeling. Okay, so maybe what we're doing today is in large part actually an emotional thing rather than just a kind of cognitive thing. Um, So that's a kind of potted sort of schematic overview. I hope that sets up some ground. So I'm feeling very grateful for that uh, tidying of the mess that is emotions. Uh, one of the approaches you mentioned there was phenomenology, so this yeah. uh, rooting of the understanding of emotions in bodily experiences. Uh, Luna, I was wondering yeah. if you might be able to say something about that. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, so my field of research is existential phenomenology, which is actually, in fact, distinct from the way you were using the term phenomenology. Um, so phenomenology, in one sense, means um, the study of subjective experience, so how, as individuals, we experience our affective states, our bodies, our relations with, other, with others. And as a philosophical tradition coming out of um, Edmund Husserl, a German uh, philosopher at the turn of the 20th century, phenomenology is about the structure of experience. So instead of looking at individual subjective experiences, it's about describing universal features of human experience that would be generalizable across all human experience. And so when thinking about emotions, phenomenology has a very particular approach which maybe knits together some of the approaches that you were outlining um, in your excellent summary of the issues, the philosophical issues, where phenomenology wouldn't see emotions as, as distinct cognitive events that kind of intrude in our otherwise rational lives, but would see us as affective beings all of the time. So our entire experience is an affective landscape that has different tones and colours. And that affective landscape knits us together not only with our own embodiment, so we have physiological sensations that accompany our affective states, but also with others, with all of our intersubjective and intercorporeal relations, and also with our world. So we're beings in the world, um, and and that that is actually quite a, a literal understanding, that the world is constituted by our being in it. And we're constituted by the world because we're in it. So there's this co-constitutive relation um, between ourselves, others, and the world. And so any emotional experience, or what we might call an emotion or distinguish as an emotion, as a discrete experience, is actually this really complex interplay between self, body, other, world, and then the circumstances that are surrounding it. So, so when you say emotions are messy, absolutely, <laughs> they're absolutely messy. And, and it comes to one of the questions, like, how do we d- differentiate? Well, what is anger, and how do we say that's different from rage, and how do we say that's different from shame? And how is love different from like? And, and one of the things when you start studying emotions, and I've read a lot of empirical psychologists who are trying to differentiate emotional states. So like, how can we say what, how guilt is different from shame, for example? And so you ask people questions. So when did you feel guilty? When did you feel shame? Can you describe that? And what's interesting is that people often lie about their experiences or the way they describe their emotions will be hyperbolic. So, you know, I know what anger is. I'll describe anger. And what you're describing is what you think anger is or the narrative that's been constructed collectively about Caricature, kind of. Yeah, kind of caricature. So trying to get to the essence of what it means to to experience an emotion and how we might distill that experience into a 
into a kind of kind that we could then generalize and say, well, we're all having, when we, have, when we say we have anger, we all have this sort of experience. Um, so so it, it's in, incredibly messy. And once you start like wading through the literature and emotion, um, in philosophy of emotion and then psychology of emotion, you start to see that it's actually really difficult to carve out these discrete experiences that we might say are just cognitive or are just bodily or are just affective, um, that we always have this interplay between all, all of these different things at any one time. So, so when you talk about the phenomenology of emotion, we're, we're really talking about this kind of messy relationship between self, other, world, body, and circumstances. Um, and, I, and I think that kind of ties together. So these debates, whether emotions are composed entirely of cognitive content or they're composed entirely of physiological content, becomes kind of moot because you just have this this kind of mess. <laughs> and when we can use different facets of investigation to describe different aspects of those experiences, but, but none of those descriptions end up being very conclusive. So the, the, the debates continue. Yeah. Is the thought that phenomenology is, is at peace with the mess? That yeah, sort of... yeah, and I guess once the, that's one of the things that a lot of contemporary philosophers find dissatisfying about um, existential phenomenology, that you know, one of the things that is... Um, the existential phenomenologists are most comfortable with is ambiguity, <laughs> uncertainty, <laughs> and the mess of lived experience. So it's not about getting to you know very discrete definitions of what what you know what a, a stage of anger might be, but to actually describe what that um, what manifests in a moment of anger, what the consequences <clears throat> for lived experience are, how that plays into cognition, and so on. So, yeah. Yeah, it seems like maybe necessary and sufficient <laughs> conditions are too much to ask for this kind of thing. Um, um, these ideas, are any of them familiar from the ancient sort of world, or is this all... Well, it's like, it, uh, if you're thinking about it in the ancient world, of course, the, the philosophers don't turn up until we're about halfway through, right? So you start out with a lot of stories, and uh, this this is what seems to me to resonate with what both Luke and Luna have been saying, that actually the, the, the Greek descriptions of these things begin with narratives, with stories of impossible situations. So if you think about something like Antigone, who finds herself uh, running up against the rule of law that says that she mustn't bury her brother because he invaded the state and caused a civil war, and her saying, but he's my brother, there's no... that. That's the end of the discussion. He's my brother, and the the sense of um, the se so partly it's the sense of these things being utterly occupying. Partly it's the sense of mess and impossibility. It's not that you can analyse them away, and that those I think the the most important thing about it is that they are ineliminably particular that what, the tr what Greek tragedy and even what other pieces of Greek literature that think about this describe are situations in which individuals find themselves. And it's against that kind of background that you get Plato and Aristotle come along and say, oh, well, right, okay, well, now we better do some theorizing about this, where it's not at all clear to me that the question they're asking when they say, well, we'll do some theorising about this, is the same question as the one, oh, well, let's talk about emotion. Because it's not clear to me that, at least from the outset, the notion of emotion 
as a as a broad kind is present in the way the Greeks thought about it. Instead, what you see is the background of these extraordinary stories being set against people trying to make sense of various kinds of things. And I think maybe the, there are three things in particular that one might see different strands in the ancient philosophical tradition trying to explain. So the, the, the first thing that's, that Plato tries to explain is, is action. And he's trying to say, well, what, you know, why is action um, other than just kind of neutral or other than just something that we calculate? And one of the things that he tries to come to terms with and answers indeed in the negative is whether the, the, um, uh, the deliverances of reason, if reason knows what it's doing, can be overruled by or outweighed by something like fear or desire or love or anger or any of those kinds of things. On that, in that primary instance, what happens is that those things that we might now, with retrospect, call emotions look like sort of push-me-pull-you. They look like drivers and nothing much more. They look like things that will just shove you. So, so put, think about it like this. One of the ways that he analyzes this kind of situation is in terms of uh, choosing between pleasure and pain or choosing between different amounts of pleasure. And one of the ways that he thinks about that, I think, is as if the pleasure kind of... It's as you imagine that pleasure sort of sitting out there in the world. There it is. It's a, it's a little sort of pollulating sphere of pleasure sitting there. And it kind of pulls you towards it. And so the, the original conception, I think, in those kinds of contexts it, of an emotion is of a mover. It's something that, that's what the origin of the word is, after all, it, it, it kind of moves you. You, are, you move towards the pollulating piece of pleasure or it pulls you, something like that. And under those circumstances, what you're not seeing is something that's articulate. You don't have any of this very subtle stuff about, uh, even about intentionality because it's just, uh, as it were, a causal account of the ways in which pleasure acts on us as if we're kind of receptacles. And Plato starts out by thinking whether that might be the way to think about it, and then he resiles from that, it seems to me, very uh, radically, and starts to think more uh, richly about how it is that we might understand our evaluative orientations. And he, his, his sort of central account of what we might think of as emotion, I think, is given in those kinds of terms. He talks about the three parts of the soul where each part of the soul, so there's the appetitive part, there's the spirited part and the rational part. And he imagines that each of those parts of the soul or the self or the person are somehow or other constituted by their orientation. And, what, and that amounts to an account of what it is to feel what it is to be, um, um, uh, uh, to have an attitude that 
commits us to whatever these evaluative pieces of our uh, psychological structure are. So he's got, that's a kind of positive version of what we might say about something like emotion. Set against that, he's really worried about um, politics. So he's really worried about frightful demagogues standing up and uh, so in Greece the, the speeches that you made in public were governed not by a clock but by a, a, a sort of hourglass thing and the, the, with water in it and the water would run out and your time would be done. So you had to do it damn quick, right? So you had to use all that, this is familiar to us, you had to use all the skills of emotional manipulation that you could find to persuade your audience to vote in favour of whatever it was that you were trying to persuade them to do. And one of the things that Plato sets himself up as doing is trying to, un, trying to both resist and undermine the ways in which public discourse uh, trades on emotional commitment, on emotional attitudes, on feelings and um, all sorts of uh, uh, drives that are not determined by something that we might think of as reason. It's a little bit of a, uh, an anachronism, I think, to think about this as a contrast between passion on the one side and reason on the other. I think it's much more loaded than that because I think he thinks that reason itself is emotionally constructed, but it's emotionally constructed in ways that are susceptible to argumentative analysis. And I think it's the combination of those two different, um, those two dif different uh, 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 trajectories in the thought both of Plato and then uh, Aristotle and the Stoics afterwards, th th that is to say the interest in how emotions move us and the interest in how we can resist emotions when we're thinking about reason, whatever that is, being somehow rather paramount, that dominate the, the piecemeal ways in which the ancients talk about emotion. That there's no, not until Aristotle really is there a proper classification of emotions, I think is explained by that. That is to say that you start with Antigone, you start with the mess, and it's only with, it's only with great difficulty that they drag themselves out of thinking in those desperately difficult particular terms, the terms that are dictated to them by tragedy. So I think, does that, anyway. <laughs> it's really helpful. It gives us this other sense of strength that feelings can have, I guess, in the sense that they can be used to manipulate. It's interesting to think about um, choosing a sort of moral path with reason, mm -hmm. maybe being opposed in some way to yeah. trying to influence people in this more maybe effective way, mm. affective, effective. Can, can I ask you just a question? So um, was the space in Plato for, you know, he, what he would call the kind of calm passions or, or, or even things like moods, like affective state, or what we would call affective states that don't seem to have as 
clear and motivational aspect? Mm. Mm. I mean, or is that just not on the radar because it's just not it's not dramatically I don't think that's on the radar like, oh, you know, Antigone's not moving no 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 I was just thinking yeah. you know, Heracles is never grumpy yeah. <laughs> I mean you know there are also the people who are in a frightful rage about things but think about the Iliad so that's the that's the sort of the background no there aren't sort of chaps in the Iliad, going around, going, well, you know, I got out of bed on the wrong side this morning. So I don't think that's... I mean, that actually is relevant, I think, to the way in which it's narrativized. that the narrative is quite spare, but, and that it's put in terms of an event and the ways in which the protagonists feel about, think about, deal with or fail to deal with that event. I think the other thing maybe that needs to be said, though, is that that before the philosophers started to try and think about what we might say about the human conditions, the human condition, the tragedians were there first, right? So that sense of tragedy is at the core of the Greek conception of the human condition. And that... you can't get rid of the mess from that. That seems to me to be the most extraordinary thing about how these rationalists then come out of that background. Okay, it might be good to see if we have any questions at this point. Does anyone have? Okay. Um, Yeah, so first of all, thanks very much. Um, Yeah, so I had one question. Uh, Going back mainly to the beginning, uh, so the things you were saying, Luke, um, but maybe more generally. So we spoke about ch- trying to define emotions, and so how do you think about it, how do you conceptualize it, and how does art in general, and maybe music in particular, tie into the work that you in particular are doing, or maybe more in the field of philosophy and emotion more generally? How does that tie in there? Because a lot of t- a lot, very often when we talk about music, and trying to define music, speaking about it in intentional terms and trying to uh, link it to reference in the world, it doesn't work. Thinking about uh, Peter Keevy and his music alone work, I think is the most prominent example there. So music is very, very physical. So how does that link? I guess, yeah, very simple question. So the link with the arts and music in particular. Okay, thank you very much. And we'll just take one more back here. Hello, um, and again, thank you very much for your uh, for, for the talk so far. Um, I uh, I suppose my question would be: um, at, uh, how, how would uh, how would you how would the panel um, consider um, the understanding of, of of effect and emotions um, when taking place in the concept in, in when taking place in the backdrop of a context of um, effects which may be considered maladaptive? So I'm talking about things like the experience of psychosis, the experience of um, traumatic events, um, perhaps sort of how those how those have been conceptualised in the past and how those are being conceptualised right now um, from a philosophical rather than perhaps a psychiatric or a clinical psychological uh, background. How are those being conceptualised now and what sort of contributions can the historical or current uh, philosophical uh, conceptualisations of those those states of being um, and what what can they contribute to the to the um, 
to the study and prevention and, and treatment of those effects which may be maladaptive. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay, so we've got one on the role of music uh, and then one on maladaptivity maybe. Is anyone one sticking out for anyone in particular? So maybe if I do the last, if I can choose one to talk about, maybe the last one first. Um, and maybe this actually relates to the question on music as well. Um, so one of the things that I find particularly exciting about some contemporary work in the emotions is that we're moving away from a kind of analytic, atomistic focus on the big big guns, you know, anger, fear, these kind of emotions that are really easy to describe, the things that animated Greek tragedy. And now people are starting to look and think a bit more about more subtle kind of affective states. Um, so things like moods, um, but things that are perhaps even more subtle than moods. And this might relate to, I don't know if this is your kind of phenomenology, but some people draw on the continental phenomenologist tradition, uh, looking at Husserl Heidegger and the people that followed them, like Karl Jaspers. And, and they're saying that actually a lot of what anchors us in our lived experience of the world uh, looks in some sense to be a kind of affective state. So um, somebody who I love to read a lot is a, a contemporary philosopher called Matthew Ratcliffe, and he has this notion of an existential feeling. So he, on his view, you have emotions at the top, right? You have moods like being sort of irritable or in a good mood. And then you have existential feelings, which he thinks of an even more subtle affective state that orientates you to your world, right? And it's really hard to describe, but he does it much better than I can. But his thought is that in psychiatric disorder, what changes is that people's existential feelings, this very baseline um, affective orientation to the world, undergoes a shift. So he would think that in, in, in cases like psychosis, for example, and other kinds of psychiatric disorder, uh, people don't feel at home in the world. They don't feel that the people that they can recognise as human are in some sense accessible as human to them, right? That there's somehow a distance between people. There's a failure of intimacy, right? Or a failure of the world to be reliable or a failure of things to seem possible. And so a lot of his work is looking at the ways that things feel possible to us. Now, it's, it's kind of really hard to describe what this is like, but w one way to get a grip on it is to think about what happens when this fails. So he, he has a whole book on depression where he says that depression is, in a sense, a failure of things feeling possible in certain ways, right? You know that you could get out of bed or you know that you could go and see a friend. You know that you could do stuff, right, but they don't feel accessible. People don't feel relatable. Actions don't present themselves to you as things to be done in the same way. And so he thinks of this stuff as kind of all changes in affect, um, albeit very subtle changes. But he thinks that this, they're hard to describe, but they're hugely important, right? So that when you're having a psychiatric, um, you're going through a sustained psychiatric episode, it's not that you're having loads of emotions kicking off all over the place, that you're sort of angry or you're, you're disaffected or you're frustrated. No, it's that your, your kind of affective background, the kind of general you know, underpaint on that canvas is changed in some way, which probably has a biological basis. Um, and so a lot of work is being done to try and describe those changes, which is really difficult. But I think it relates to the question about music as well, actually, which is that music seems to affect our, our whole affective being in a way that, uh, to register that fact, we need to focus on things like moods and these other states more closely. And, and I think you were right to say that we can't just focus on sort of atomistic emotions, um, like, oh, this music makes me feel happy now and then angry and then a sense of trepidation. No, there's a kind of broad affective tone. Mm. Um, I, I don't know if you want to say anything about that. Um, no, I was just thinking about what you were saying about <clears throat> um, 
Matthew's work, Matthew Ratcliffe's work, and he has this idea that when we enter sort of certain states in psychopathologies, we lose our sense of belonging to the world. And I think that using the, the idea and the, the concept and term belonging is really useful because I think when we lose that sense of possibility because of a shift in our affective state, what we, what we find is we can experience a rift between our reality but also our relationships. And when we have that rift... Um, then we lose a sense of our, our purpose, our meaning, our, um, I guess, our engagement with our ordinary kind of day-to-day. And, and I think it, it, it highlights even more the fact that emotions are about relationships. They're about relationships to other <coughs> beings, to other human subjects. Um, that they're kind of the fabric that knits together the meaning that, that keeps us interacting with each other, keeps us striving towards having a sense of belonging with others, belonging to our... Um, milieu, our environment, and so on. And, and I think that's a really nice way to think about, if you think about these emotions kind of just kind of connecting us together, and, and the, their tenor changes, their intensity changes, and, and I think that it's a nice way to then think about how music creates a landscape, that, an effective landscape that um, we're inhabiting as well. Um, so, yeah, it just made me think about emotions and relationships. I mean, that's one of your interests about the relationships being, the, the emotions being the glue of relationships. But I think that, that that happens in these intense relationship states, like with our loved ones and with our families. But, you know, in, in more general terms, even walking down the street past complete strangers, we have this affective connection mm-hmm. to others. Um, and and that, that is fleshed out in different ways. Um, yeah. So I'm 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 slightly rowing back from this. So here's a question about music. So um, one of the difficulties, and I think this goes right back in the history of the subject, is whether what we're thinking here, and this connects, I think, to both of the questions, in fact, mm-hmm. is about something that's roughly determinist, right? So the idea is, well, oh well, look. You're stuck in all of this kind of awful sloshing around stuff, and there's all these other people, and you've got to, you know, you've got to interact with them, and you've got to worry about all of that kind of stuff. And it kind of happens to you because there you are in the fabric of it. So here's the question about music Can you learn? Can you decide to have an emotion and learn it? So it seems to me that in the case of music, that's actually something that you really can. You can sit down. You can say, look, you know, I know, I, I know that Bach, my husband hates Bach. And I keep going, yeah, I, I, listen to some more and then you won't, right? That, he refuses, of course, because he hates it already. But he, <laughs> it seems to me that there are situations, that music is an obvious example because it's so hard that you can decide for yourself that you want to become affected by this music or uh, excited by it or moved by it from a situation where you're already neutral. Where I go, oh, well, you know, uh, Bach and I'm trying to think of some suitable modern thing... I wasn't going to say, uh, I was going to say, no, no, I was going to say like the Beatles. (laughs) (laughs) Sort of gives my age away more than someone. Right, okay, but supposing that was, you know, why should, where you could could be going, yeah, yeah, you know, I understand about the Beatles, but 
My real aspiration is to enjoy Bach. If emotion is determinist, can we make sense of that, do you think? What do you think? Because the consumption of music is so strongly connected to our sense of identity that the emotional, the the cerebral aspect is much stronger than you might uh, assume there, which is also given away by the fact that you mentioned the Beatles as as an example for modern music. Because... um, People who are not as much, and I'm making assumptions here, <laughs> as, as much interested in, in popular culture, they can't actually, uh, they don't understand the connection between your sense of self and uh-huh. a certain band, or the, the way you right. see yourself cerebrally, analytically speaking, and a certain piece of music. So the emotional aspect of music that is quite engraved, obviously, in classical music, because it's so detached from uh, the notion of who am I as a person, classical music is obviously very much. It, it is the perfect example for something that is that you could describe as you start with a neutral um, point and then you, you put on Chopin and you feel romantic. But with all other kinds of music, that doesn't actually apply. It's very unique to classical right. music that you, can, that you can detach it in that way from your sense of who am I as a person. So my point is, the one reason why your husband might uh, dislike Bach, and I dislike him as well, by the way, <laughs> um, is that that music stands for a certain way of being, which is a bit <laughs> confined, a bit uh, <laughs> structural, a bit uh, connecting emotion with uh, societal constraints. I don't even want to go into it. Um, so that, that could be a cerebral le- reason why he is not willing to take the emotion into his body. Right, so is the, so, so I mean, it's, there are t- seem to me to be two strands in what you're saying. So one of them is about uh, is a point about culture, right? So, so that uh, and I see that, and it seems to me that if we're thinking about culture, just kind of you know, capital K, we're, <laughs> the music that represents culture with a capital K is something that quite possibly is uh, described in these deterministic ways. You know, it just kind of happens. You know, you're on the tube and you hear it between somebody's ears and you, you're in the shop or whatever. So you don't actually choose to go and listen to it. So I think there's a difference between that kind of music and maybe classical music. I've now forgotten my second point. Uh, yeah, so I think that so, uh, I, I think you can think about identity in those terms. I'm not convinced you can do it the other with the other kinds of case, so where you actually uh, decide. But is that have I? Is, am I just describing something sort of batty? Is it? Does nobody else have this? Ex- oh well, you know, I really would like to. I mean, I'd really like to enjoy Shostakovich. I remember thinking that, and then he's actually, that, he's brilliant. He's amazing. <laughs> I didn't to begin with. Is, are there sort of dangers at both ends, right? So you're, right, you're okay. worried about people, the sort of barriers to entry. Oh, it's really difficult to feel your way into a piece of music, right? So mm-hmm. Ed Sheeran or Shostakovich or whatever. It's difficult. It's difficult to engage with for some people. Um, but there, isn't there a worry at the other end, which is that, I mean, the, the other kind of emotional pathology you've got to be careful of is sort of sentimentality yes. uh, or being too easily manipulated as it were or influenced by emotions mm-hmm. which is a kind of mainstay of our 
culture industry and, the, and, and films in general, and, and particular, I mean, politics, political propaganda and so on, the use of music to, to yes. instantly get people to feel a certain way. Yes. Right? Um, but that goes with the worry about popular culture, right? Well, Maybe. I'm not sure if it's... I mean, perhaps and perhaps not. I mean, I feel different kinds of... Music can very quickly elicit different kinds of mood mm. in a way that's not obviously culturally shaped. Mm. I, I mean, I don't know. But I think it's very easy, for example, to play music that puts a large group of people on edge, makes them feel anxious, perhaps without even knowing that they feel that way. Easy to put music on that right. makes people feel calm and so on. Right. Um, and so... Yeah, culture is relevant, right? Maybe when it comes to Bach, because that's alien to some people and our cultural world. Yeah. But I think that there's a kind of the, the 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 thing that worries me more is how automatic and how resonant we are with music and other art forms in a way that we're not even aware of. Um, and it's been used to great devastating effect by nearly every sort of terrible political leader mm-hmm. in the history of the universe. Right. Well, and that was one of Plato's worries too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe Go. Just short enough, maybe it didn't make clear is what I meant is probably the distinction between you can't make yourself like something, that's probably what I actually meant, but you can of course have feelings towards a piece of music neuroscientifically speaking that you are not aware of, of course but what I was trying to say is you can't make him like Bach or, uh, because he dislikes what Bach he could dislike what Bach stands for so that, so, but you can't you cannot prevent him feeling certain things towards Bach, probably that's what I meant distinction between mm. You can't make someone like something that is also attached to, to something else but the music in and of itself. So music is not just music. There's also cultural connotation mm-hmm. and so forth. Mm-hmm. And if you dislike that, you can't make him like the whole thing. But, of course, you're also right that you could always feel something. You can always make someone can feel something towards a piece of music even when they don't want that because that's just uh, something that happens to your brain automatically that you can't control. So this is very deterministic, Right. And that's what I'm wondering about. I'm still wondering about that. I'm still wondering whether what we're describing when we describe the mess <laughs> is something that we jar, that, you know, there's absolutely nothing we can do about it. I mean, ancient Stoics got their knickers in a twist about this kind of thing, and uh, in all the wrong ways, I think. But it, it does seem to me that there are, there are possibilities of are shaping our own... This partly goes to the thought that emotions and perceptions are connected. Ways in which we can shape our perceptions. But, yeah, I'm struggling to see the problem because I think we can cultivate Mm -hmm. um, certain sensibilities and certain emotional dispositions quite easily and and Mm -hmm. there's plenty of kind of, I could say, mindfulness practices or uh, Mm -hmm. or sort of exercises where you can... Well, cultivate positivity. Mm-hmm. So you're st- stuck in a, a kind of negative mm. thought pattern, and you can you can break it, and and that that can generate the physiological feelings in the body. Mm. So I think the idea that we have trouble cultivating certain dispositions or affective states or emotions is it doesn't seem like a problem to me. I think I think we do mm-hmm. it all the time. And if someone tells you that's a really nice wine, and you don't like wine, but you want you know you you can cultivate a disposition towards mm-hmm. the experience of drinking it. Mm-hmm. And find something to appreciate, and then suddenly the next thing you know, you're, you really enjoy that sort of wine. You know, I, I think I think we undergo these kind of transformations, affective transformations, all the time. And there's a, le- a on some in some experiences, there's a level of agency and willpower to them. And in other experiences, I mean, talking about in, in this idea that 
um, music can affect us in ways that we don't even realize. So we don't mm -hmm. even realize that the music's put us on edge or that the, brought up a sentimental disposition. Mm -hmm. And I think at the same time, we have experiences of emotions that are um, unconscious even to ourselves. So they're certainly not mm -hmm. transparent experiences um, and can motivate to, to behave in certain ways um, completely out of our awareness. Mm. Mm. You might realize it later, you might never realize it. You know? mm. yeah. yeah. I also think that um, the certain emotions may be more amenable to this kind of treatment than others, yeah. right? So some people think that looks, a certain class of emotions are more basic than others. So your ability to feel afraid of something is more basic than your ability to feel schadenfreude, right? Because fear is a very evolutionary important response to danger that is shared between us and animals. And similarly, other people think that certain kinds of more sophisticated emotional distinctions come later. So I agree with you that kind of mindfulness and that can work, you know, when you're kind of being irked at work, someone's annoying you, you feel a bit jealous of someone else or whatever. Perhaps you can do mindfulness, but as anyone that's a recalcitrant, you know, got a phobia or hates snakes on TV, those, those, those emotions run deep, right? And some people think that those depths have a particular biologically located source that is distinct from other kinds of emotions. Um, I mean, the other, uh, other thing that all this talk of music made me think of as well is that we've got to be careful to think of, to, to recognise that emotions have history as well. They, they have um, the ways in which people feel at a given time are not just a kind of function of them as atomistic individuals. They're a function of their social context, right? Um, and so different eras, different cultures, different countries uh, experience different kinds of sentiment in different uh, degrees, and I think this is something that uh, all this talk of Greek tragedy made me think of. Maybe they just were really angry, really passionate people, <laughs> right? Whereas nowadays, our, all of our tragic kind of literature is all based on subtle moods of disaffection and kind of quiet alienation from one's life in, in this way that we'd find the kind of dramatic anger mm -hmm. a bit sort of mm -hmm. strange. So, on potential disaffection, we have one more question on this topic. Yeah. I think here immediately. Um, this is kind of like a broader question, but emotions have been described as kind of like movers or drivers. Do you think we have like an ability to mi manipulate our own emotions or have control over our emotions in any way? Can I stop myself from being angry or can I force myself to like something? Thanks. What do you reckon? <laughs> it depends. <laughs> well, ever a philosopher. Um, I mean, I don't think, I'm not sure that liking something is an emotion. It, uh, maybe that's a bit of a pedantic point. But, um, and I think that actually part of the issue with MM's husband uh, liking a piece of music <laughs> is that there's a relationship between feelings and other things going on, right? How, how, how familiar is the thought that you don't like something precisely because it moved you so quickly that you feel almost like it's trash, it's, it's too easy, you're, you're just kind of like it's trivial, it's flotsam, it's nothing of real substance, right? I mean, this is something that you feel usually around the age of 17, 18, that you want to be serious, you want music to have kind of meaning and purpose and value, whatever. And, and you, so you often cultivate a dislike of things that are actually too emotionally moving. And I think that amongst certain circles, there's a, there's a, a reticence and concern with sentimentality, that you, we should automatically try to not like, you know, these, these films that make us sort of tear up over, you know, I don't know, American misadventures in the Pacific of World War II, whatever it may be, these kind of dramatic films. And so there's a gulf between our liking things and, and mm. feeling a certain way that maybe is your... Maybe your husband really feels a lot when he listens to Buck and he, does, he doesn't like that fact. Like it. Yeah, that's true. Maybe that's true. <laughs> so I thought we might move on to talk a little bit about some current research projects involving this. So I was wondering, Luna, you're 
got a big project on shame and medicine. Yeah, yeah so I've been that. researching shame um, and negative subconscious emotions for quite a few years and now collaborate with an anesthetist who's also an academic on a project that looks at shame and its role in, in medicine and in clinical encounters. Um, and it's, it's kind of really interesting to bring this kind of philosophy of emotion into a very pragmatic and practical um, setting, and it is particularly when considering biomedicine, which is a practice and a discipline that's always tried to dis- distance itself from the emotion. So it's, a, it's a, an empirical science. So we study the physiology of the bodies and find the sources of negative health um, circumstances within biology and within biochemistry. Um, and traditionally, emotions don't have much to do with that, certainly from the, the aspect of uh, uh, biomedical practitioners. And it's only recently that um, there have been sort of strong links shown between affective states and health outcomes. So, I mean, obviously, in mood disorders or in, in psychopathologies, mood and affective states are central to the expression of certain psychopathologies. Um, but when you think about things um, you know, like purely biological um, sort of disorders, uh, often it thought, well, emotions don't have anything to do that. We just need to find the physical cause and treat the physical cause. Um, and it's been really interesting working in this kind of realm of, of biomedicine and particularly looking at shame as a, a negative self-conscious experience. So shame is the experience when you feel that you have transgressed or maybe done something wrong and others can, can see that about you. And one of the consequences of shame is that you feel... Um, massive threats to your social bonds. So you're worried about your sense of belonging. You're worried about your sense of connection to others. You're worried about being ostracized or rejected. And what's come up in a lot of the research is that shame is is kind of permeating um, loads of clinical encounters. You only have to think of the show Embarrassing Bodies to think about how shame is so central to our sense of embodiment and our concerns about uh, our health. Um, you know, there's a huge amount of vulnerability tied up in our bodies um, and how we experience our bodies and how we experience our bodies in relation to others. So there's a lot of shame and stigma around illness. Um, There's a lot of shame about going to the doctor. And this leads to things like lying or not pursuing treatment. um, And then that has consequences for health. And then one of the most interesting things is that shame itself um, causes ill health. So the, the chronic stressors that um, in, you know, increased levels of cortisol in the body have negative effects on things like your heart and your arteries and um, other physiological sy- systems. So there's this kind of emerging literature at the moment looking at how emotions actually directly impact on physiology and how that implicates in health. So it's, it's been really fascinating bringing this kind of philosophy of emotion into this kind of health context. Yeah. Especially thinking of the way we use the word clinical now to mean... Yeah. Like essentially non-emotional in some ways. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so, do you think a better understanding of the emotions can can be sort of introduced into? Yeah, and it's also re- been really interesting in this project that we've 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 been doing. We've been looking at emotions and particularly negative self-conscious emotions like shame and guilt and embarrassment, um, and thinking about how they the role they play in health and health outcomes. So, wh- whether they affect um, the quality of health services. We've also been looking at how those emotions play out on the other side for clinicians. So, um, and I probably don't need to say this because it's, so, it's everywhere in our um, mainstream culture, but like the, the spectacle of shame and humiliation, especially through social media and mass culture, is, is so pr- prominent and that's really touching um, in biomedicine as well. So public shaming of doctors is a big problem, the fear of medical failure. There's been like a huge spate of medical memoirs that are written where doctors and other health um, care providers talk about, a, a, you know, burnout and stress and all of these emotional experiences. And um, so that's, that's also been really 
kind of a fascinating angle looking at the, the role, I mean, just looking at the human side of medicine, I suppose, and the role that effective states have in how people experience their profession and how that plays out in terms of how they then treat their clients or patients. The more you think about shame, the more pervasive it seems yeah. in, in a lot of our transactional kind of... Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think... I mean, there's been quite a lot written about fear and anxiety being the kind of mood of neoliberalism, but I think shame is in there as well. This kind of persistent sense of isolating individuals, making people feel self-conscious and anxious and afraid that they're going to sever their social bonds. And I think we see that playing out in lots of different ways and the, the sort of spectacles of shame and humiliation we see on television all the time. We see on, you know, in trashy magazines or tabloid newspapers or on social media kind of bring that to light. Like, we're... We're all terrified of feeling ashamed or embarrassed, and 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 this plays on our cultural anxieties, yeah, encouraging us to buy more things and <laughs> you compensate, know, compensate yeah. to feel safer. Yeah. Any insights on this? Um, <laughs> well, the thing that came to mind immediately was maybe, may, yeah, maybe we're seeing resurgence of shame. So historically, mm. it's. It, it, it sort of went away for a period of time, I guess around the, the sort of 18th century. Well, I think to the, the, the yeah. extent which is prominent, I was one. The question I'd ask you is: Do you yeah. think that social media allows you to accumulate lots or like a lot of very thin social connections with mm-hmm. people? Um, but each one of those is a kind of opportunity for shame in the way that in the past you'd have f- fewer but mm-hmm. stronger. Yeah. So do you think there's a kind of a kind of quantitative increase in shame yeah. because of the quantitative increase in social I bonds? wouldn't say it was quantitative, maybe more qualitative in that the, the, the type of shame. So um, there's a really interested idea, interesting idea about what we would experience as unbounded shame. So in, in the past, before we had all of these kind of amazing communication technologies, you had your community, and if you were disgraced or shamed, then the people in your immediate community might think differently about you. But, you, you know, if it was really terrible, you could just move to the next town. Mm-hmm. Whereas now we have this unbounded shame where, you know, your shame will follow you everywhere if it's on online in this kind of virtual context there's no escape and, and you see the consequences of that a lot of cyberbullying leads to suicide that people can't get away from the disgrace um, and the disgrace is really about the fear of, of losing social bonds of being ostracized of being outcast of being mm-hmm. you know it's, it's a really pernicious feeling um, that you're not good enough and, and that the anxiety that comes with that so I think it's not that, that maybe we have more shame, but it's the nature of the shame that that, mm. that it, you can't really escape it anymore. Yeah, that might be different. Yeah. So, do you think we should be doing something about it? I mean, <laughs> is the idea that we could get rid of it? No. Feel better about <laughs> yeah. it. I mean, I mean, yeah. It sounds like just uh, so. There's a whole lot of stuff about how. This is what drives ancient cultures as yeah. well. There's shame cultures and all this. For my money, guilt's worse. Um, so <laughs> maybe that... But, but is it that the idea would be that somehow or other we could be without it well, I and don't still so. have a sense of ourselves yeah. in the eyes of others? Well, although what I've been describing is shame as a negative and kind of pernicious experience, it's also necessary. So it's part of the human condition and it's mm. the... Perhaps, I mean, some people call it the emotion of um, social control and the emotion that forms identity. It it shows us the boundaries of our social relations and our personal Mm -hmm. relations. So I think we can't live without it. 
But right. then it can flip into being um, a, an emotion that's devastating and can also be part of a political kind of control, right? right. So, so, right. so there's always this tension between sh shame being necessary but also being kind of potentially pernicious and devastating. Mm. Mm. Um, so it's not that we want to do away with shame. We don't want to be shameless. Um, uh, as I think a lot of recent politics has shown us, that that is bad. Um, but I think we also want it to not be a, an emotion of um, political control. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of secrecy. Shame is shameful, so it's taboo to talk about shame. It's, it's shameful to, to admit <gasps> to feeling shame. And that means that there's a lot of secrecy around shame, and we go to great lengths to hide it, to cover it, to conceal it. Um, and so, so thinking of that television show, Embarrassing Bodies, I don't know if everyone's, I mean, everyone probably knows what it is, but, or maybe has even watched it. It's where people are too embarrassed to go to their doctor, um, so instead they go into television. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, I'm so astonished you haven't heard of this show. Yeah, come on, man. <laughs> so you're too embarrassed to go to your GP because you have like a funny lump somewhere private. So instead you go onto television and show the funny lump in the private place to a doctor on television in front of cameras and millions of viewers. And it was Channel 4's most successful show for many, many years. It stopped airing two years ago. Um, but what a show like that demonstrates is that one of the ways to combat shame um, and, and to diffuse it, I suppose, is is through revelation, through publicity, through, yeah, <laughs> the catharsis of revealing your shame. And, and in political movements, when we think of things like, you know, gay pride or black is beautiful, mm -hmm. or even the Special Olympics, where you have populations that were previously like cast away and hidden and, and shameful, stigmatized, you know, they're marginalized. And the way to, in right. part, to liberation politics is to, right. to flaunt that shame and make That's it really pride. That's really interesting. Yeah. Mm. Mm. What, what do you think the difference between uh, shame and embarrassment is? Because the show is called yeah. Embarrassing Bodies, right? Yeah. Not, not Shameful Bodies. Yeah. And I'm wondering whether... <laughs> no, that's not like me being irritating. <laughs> I, I'm guessing um, there is a... We, we do have... Yeah. Like, so embarrassment seems like equally problematic often. People, yeah. People's fear of embarrassment can be very strong. Yeah. Um, but that seems to be com something we can combat something you can do something about with humour, with yeah. other kinds of but, things. Yeah. Whereas, is shame different? In well, it's, it's very, like we were talking about before, it's very, it's very difficult to differentiate between um, em emotions and negative self-conscious emotions. There's enormous, an enormous literature trying to dif differentiate shame from embarrassment. And things that are often said are things like, well, embarrassment is less intense, embarrassment is trivial, where shame really touches something deep about you. Um, embarrassment is fleeting where shame is more enduring so there's there actually maybe you know dozens of different ways that they're differentiated but i think what's interesting is that something that might be deeply embarrassing or sorry deeply shaming for me might be trivially embarrassing for you so there's so, you know so there there's no way to meaningfully say well that's definitely going to cause shame and that's definitely going to cause embarrassment um and there's an, uh, I think shame is used often as an umbrella term to capture a whole family of negative self-conscious emotions like embarrassment or humiliation or mortification. Um, and I think the way they're differ differentiated most commonly is through intensity. And thinking about uh, like lexical considerations and, and when we move into different language registers, mm -hmm. so apparently um, I read recently in Chinese there's 121 words for shame whereas in, like that's designate shame, which is the one word in English, right? So there's words that mean things like bringing dishonor to your family, bringing dishonor to your family 
20 generations back, bringing dishonor to your family 25 generations back. You know? And I mean, whether that's the case or not, it just goes to show that in, when we move into different um, linguistic registers, then we, we have then different emotional experiences. And we can, mm. you know, like mm. you, you described with Schadenfreude, you know. Mm. So, so it's very difficult to say what's the difference between shame and embarrassment. And maybe not even meaningful in some sense to, yeah. to do it, yeah. So it might be nice to see if there's any more questions at this point. I'm curious if uh, within the British context, if um, strong emotions and um, strong feelings carry a a pejorative um, aspect to them. I'm thinking of, you know, the T-shirt, stay, keep calm and carry on. And I'm thinking of um, how, if you can remember the Michael Winner advert, calm down, dear, which I think David Cameron reiterated settled down. You know, if, if somehow uh, there's a bias against um, groups or cultures which allow their, emo- uh, their um, emotions to show, I mean, even within the, the British context, sometimes during the Irish Troubles, there was this kind of thinking that, well, they're Irish, you know, they, they will kill each other, whereas we're, we're much more ration- too rational to do that, something like that. Um, yeah, hi. Um, so I'm actually quite interested in the idea of um, the rift in, sense, in terms of the disruption in terms of belonging um, and linking that with the clinical encounter that um, you've, we've been talking about more recently. Um, and uh, so I guess in the clinical encounter, it's um, an interaction b- between two individuals, but they're all engaging with um, a healthcare system that has been designed by groups um, uh, so, in, in which case there are sort of dominant and less dominant groups, um, and so how does the sociality create um, rifts that create negative emotions and complications within, um, I guess, medical systems and treatment in general? Okay, thanks. So we've got one on maybe British stoicism as a sort of feature of this cultural identity as opposed to my murderous people Um, uh, and then one on maybe the structure of uh, the structure of sort of relations that govern clinical sort of situations okay Um, anyone want to say something about stoicism I've got uh, I have some very strong feelings about stoicism (laughs) appropriate yeah Uh, um, I'm not sure that I can answer for what it what it's like to be British because I don't really approve of keeping calm and carrying on. So um, British though I may be. So, but let me just t- take us back for a minute to actual stoicism, which is terribly fashionable these days. Um, you know, you're supposed to. When I think oh, so, Nussbaum has got a lot to do with this. There are a lot of other people who frightfully excited about the dreadful Stoics. So here is why they are dreadful, and it goes along exactly with what we've been talking about. So the idea is that the Stoics have the view that emotions are judgments, and that what you do with your emotions is get rid of them. Right. So you talk to your emotional judgments, and you kind of sit on them. So all sorts of emotions like... Anger and uh, desire, everything that knocks you off, 
keeping calm and carrying on needs to be kind of philosophized away. Here is where it gets nasty. So there are one or two Stoic texts where they describe the therapy for grief. Um, here's what you should do if you're a sensible Stoic sage. What you should, and, and you uh, in anticipate, I mean, think about these being Roman Stoics, right? So Romans were always getting their heads chopped off by emperors. So it was a dicey time to hang around. And supposing you're worried about your child dying because the emperor is such a stinker. Um, so what you're supposed to do about that is practice what it's going to be like when it happens. That's the first mad thing. <laughs> so that when it does happen, you won't mind. <laughs> Now, it seems to me that that, that that is an example of how these uh, uh, approaches, some of these theoretical approaches to emotion that seek indeed to make us think we've got to keep calm and carry on, are morally deeply pernicious. Because in, those, in the case of that kind of grief, that kind of grief is a... It, uh, is a necessary condition of all of our proper, f fine human relationships. The <laughs> idea that you can therapize it away is a shocking one. A, a different example is the example that, that maybe I'm just jump ahead to some of the things we thought we might talk about. One of them is the question about anger. Um, so you might think that anger is something you ought not to fuss about and that we ought instead to be terribly polite to each other as you're caricaturing the British as being terribly, terribly polite. One of the things about politeness is that it doesn't acknowledge disparity of power. And one of the things about anger, if it's possible to uh, uh, recover the notion of anger from the, the rather sort of uh, instrumentalizing view that, again, somebody like Nussbaum says, oh, well, it's the desire for payback. Now, Aristotle started that off. It, no, it isn't. It's just being really furious. It's not an instrument. I mean, one of the ways of understanding it is there's an expressive attitude to disparities of power. And it's, it, there's been a lot of discussion of that especially in the last three weeks. Um, and it's one of the places where anger is absolutely fundamental to our insisting in the face of the civility of power that it should not be exercised in the way that it seeks to exercise itself. So, sorry, that was a rant in response to keeping... Calm. No, it's a very important rant, I think. I can, I can just briefly answer the, sure. the other question and linking it to the idea of power. And I think the dis, in the clinical context, certainly what characterizes it most strongly is probably a discrepancy in a power relation. So usually mm -hmm. the healthcare mm -hmm. professional or the clinician um, is, it has, holds the power in the situation in, in many aspects. And often that can be gendered, it can be raced, um, it can be about education and class. Um, it can be about knowledge, so knowing something that the person in front of you doesn't know. Um, and because 
healthcare encounters are usually about the body, which is our site of vulnerability. They're hugely emotionally fraught, so we're afraid um, of revealing our vulnerabilities. We're also afraid for our survival and our health. So, so I think there, there's a, um, you know, the, the drama of the clinical encounter is is an affective drama. Um, and because of the nature of medicine as being dispassionate or kind of traditional biomedicine as being dispassionate and about physiology, um, there is no place for the emotions to come up. So you can't start talking about, well, I'm terribly afraid of, you know, what might happen. You know, it's, it, it can mm. be very alienating and, um, uh, and hugely upsetting. So, yeah, I think thinking about power relations, um, you know, in that, in that context is really central to thinking about how emotions play out. And, and what we found really interesting in looking at shame is that shame is all about power relations. Mm-hmm. So people who, who feel the least amount of shame are usually those who hold the most social power. Um, yes. and, and those who are most susceptible to shame and having shame um, or even just embarrassment be a, a devastating condition or experience are those who are most vulnerable and most marginalised. Um, so, so that's quite interesting when you think about it in so that way. Is, uh, that goes to the other question too, doesn't it? Isn't that built into some of our conceptions of knowledge and expertise, mm-hmm. which is that you think that, oh, well, look, here's a whole system that's based on everybody knowing stuff, and I'm not an expert, and I'm all I've got is a lumpy body. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's not much I can do about it except kind of submit. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, um, I think that's, there's a problem about the way that knowledge and expertise is construed as power mm-hmm. within an institution yeah. like, a, like a health system or whatever. And I agree that often these things are gendered. Pregnancy, for example. Is, uh, well, it's one of the times when you are... Mo- because you're physically um, uh, cumbersome, you feel always at a disadvantage. And so the gendering gets more effective. Then, Sorry, that's a piece of history. I beg your pardon. <laughs> so I wonder, is there a final question, maybe? So I was interested in um, the difference, the kind of contrast between emotion and um, reason or rationale and what you said as reason as being emotionally constructed. Mm -hmm. Um, Is the emotionally constructed reason a political and cultural thing? And if it is, do kind of current politics, like patriarchal politics, Mm -hmm. use that to their advantage to make them seem more correct, do you think? So it was what I was... I was talking about a platonic view of reason, which is not kind of bare and, and value-free, but freighted with a kind of value that he supposes to be the one that explains the good of the whole organism or, or whatever like that. And it seems to me... I mean, I think that... Um, I think you're... I think... There are two points to make, or two more points that I would make. Uh, one of them is that uh, there is a... There is, it goes back to the thought about expertise. There is a kind of trope that says, oh, well, you know, reason is just... kind of goes right down the line and gives you the truth and the facts. 
and values have got nothing to do with anything. They're just sort of walloping around around the edges. Philosophers are responsible for that kind of nonsense, I have to say. Um, uh, and that just seems to me to be uh, uh, unhelpful, but it's unhelpful particularly when it's embedded in uh, structures of power of various kinds. And it seems to me that it's a mistake to think that reason is not freighted with value. It is, but it, it has values that are differently constructed from some of the other, as Plato thought of it as parts of the soul, but some of the other ways we might think about value. Um, so I completely agree. I think, it's, um, I think that there are moments where those kinds of points can be made both rationally and emotionally, when the point that you're making is against disparity, for example. Final considerations from you guys? I mean, I, I don't know much about um, what philosophers think of as sort of reason with a capital R. Mm. Um, but if you look at lots of the things we think of as rationality and reasoning, sort of formulating arguments, drawing inferences, evaluating evidence, evaluating testimony, all of the kind of nuts and bolts of kind of thinking about stuff and making decisions on the back of that thought. So much of that seems to me intimately linked, if not constituted, by forms of emotion. So which inferences uh, seem ready at hand? Which things seem plausible? Which seem things intuitively satisfying? Um, I mean, and if you look at, you know, the, um, the kind of cliched example of the most rational activity you can think of, sort of pure mathematics, you know, the amount of um, pure mathematicians that I've spoke to speak of their work in basically aesthetic or emotional terms is very interesting. The key word that, or key words that crop up, and I think people have actually done like statistical research mining through their articles and, and kind of um, informal writings are things like elegance, things like beauty, um, certain notions of things fitting together, being harmonious and so on and so forth. And all of these things seem to me the products of a kind of emotional achievement, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, things just seem to harmonise, they seem beautiful, they seem to align. Mm-hmm. And so I think that so much of what we do when we're thinking about things and reasoning, right, and so much of what counts for reasoning in the public sphere, um, with the scare quotes intended, is, is emotionally charged. And I'm, I mean, some people say, look, it's basically impossible to uh, do what counts as reasoning, right, if you have um, damage to the so-called emotional circuits in the brain, right? That's disputed, but irrespective of that, I think that it is an emotional activity and one which is therefore ripe for um, various kinds of manipulation, rhetoric, but also that probably has a social shape to it. So things that pass as kind of plausible kinds of argumentation in our mm-hmm. society will differ 100 years ago, will differ from ancient Greece mm-hmm. and so on. Mm-hmm. And those differences won't really be differences of formal logical style or what inferences are uh, acceptable, but there'll be differences in terms of which kinds of reasons are reasonable, mm-hmm. uh, wh- which kinds of considerations are at hand, which kinds of association um, seem beautiful, elegant, or fitting, and appropriate. Yeah. And all of that's emotional. So, y- yeah, I don't know what reason the couple R is, but everything that mm. we seem to be doing does have an emotional aspect, definitely. Yes. Yes. Well, um, I was going to say, um, I'm very sad to say that we are now out of time, um, but maybe we could thank our panellists and our question askers. Yeah.